for tuning in for episode 3 of Sunday at 10. On part 2 of my Oscars episode, I will be featuring an interview I had with Beth Barrett, the artistic director for the Seattle International Film Festival, and I'm very excited to share a conversation with you all because she is honestly an incredible woman. Then later on in the episode, I'll be bringing up female representation in this year's Academy Awards show and all of the exciting things that happened. So stay tuned, but for now, enjoy my exclusive interview with Beth Barrett. Hi. Hello. Hi. Um, so how is your day going? So far, so good. Yeah. yeah. A couple no, of movies. Good. It's all good. That's good. Usual day. Usual day. Yeah. Yep. Um, so could you tell our listeners um, about what your job is here at SIF and a little bit what you do day to day? Yeah. My, um, my job here, I'm the artistic director, and that means that I provide leadership in terms of the films that we show, the education programs that we have, um, the cinema year-round, really managing the programming process, both for cinema, which is very, very different than the programming process for festival, Um, and I manage the people that manage people um, in terms of that, but also setting the, the tone for how we approach programming and how we think about films and making sure that within our work we we have the lenses of um, the vast diversity of audience that we have uh, and not just our own lenses. One of the things that I think is most challenging um, in programming is when you see a film that you personally just really don't like. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, God, that was awful. That was a terrible, terrible film. But here's the thing this audience is going to like it, or this is an important story for this particular group of people, or I just really don't like horror films, so I'm not a terrific judge of that. Mm -hmm. Or, like, there's, there's, it's hard to take your emotions out of programming a a film for festival, um, which is why people get so emotional. They're like, oh my God, that was awful, or that was amazing, and you're like... Was it that? Was it? I mean, <laughs> so trying to trying to balance that that um, that real love for film and love for for finding those audiences um, with making sure that we are accurately both representing our audience and also um, you know bringing in new audiences that uh, that are interested in festival but they don't quite know where to start. Mm-hmm. Nice. All right. That sums it up. Do you have, like, a favorite part of your job? Um, I, I, I do, and it's going to sound really weird. I really love the database. <laughs> like, my favorite part of my job is sort of tracking information and moving information from one place to another and watching films mm-hmm. and reading about them and sort of figuring out where all the pieces fit together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, conversely, I really love doing Q&As. I love talking to filmmakers about their films. I love trying trying to get that one step a little bit deeper that is, you know, because no filmmaker wants to talk about their budget or, um, you know, the different production challenges they have. They want to talk about what the film means to them mm-hmm. and what they're trying to get across and how they're interacting with the audiences. And that's that's something that 
we do especially well here at SIF is that we connect those audiences and those filmmakers uh, mm -hmm. through Q&As. It's all very approachable. Everybody feels like they could just walk up and say hi to Catherine Bigelow when she was here, which actually was kind of a cool experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was here with Hurt Locker, and, um, and it was actually... It was, really great to be able to walk right up to her and just mm -hmm. be like, hi, I really enjoyed your film. Thank yeah. you for making it. Yeah. Um, and you don't always feel that way in a lot of festivals mm -hmm. or in a lot of situations, but I think that we've broken down those barriers between the filmmaker way up high and the audience way down low and put them both together because none of it works unless they're both there on an equal footing. Um, and so that's something that we really we, th we think about a lot. And because we're a little more laid back and because we're an audience-based festival, people are here to see films. And they're not necessarily, they're not here to be seen because, you know, they're just here to see films. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. I love that. I'm really excited to be a part of this next festival. Like, I've never even gone to a film festival before or, like, done... Oh, I can't wait for you to do your so first Q and A. It's so, going to be so exciting. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, moving on to the Oscars, what did you think about the show overall? You know, I thought it was. I thought it was good. I thought it was. Um, I thought it was respectful in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, there was not a lot of surprise. Um, you know, a lot of joy for Jordan Peele winning for mm -hmm. screenplay, which was fantastic. Um, uh, Daniela Vega being a being a presenter. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of a lot of firsts were crossed um, it, with uh, with open arms, but um, but overall, it was okay. Yeah, it was. I, it was all right. In like, Francis McDormand was amazing. Right. But yes, that was overall. That the Oscars was, was okay. It was yeah, all right. I, I was kind of after that, I was like, oh, okay, well, it's over now. I guess yeah. we'll just wait for next year. Yeah. Um, but I really loved all the love for Mexico and all the performances were so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just the, like the amount of people of color that they had on stage. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure they kind of wanted to keep it. At least Jimmy probably wanted to keep it boring because of what happened. Because of what last happened year. last year. <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. That's a that that uh, there's a, there's a lot going on there, but um, yeah. I mean. I think it was it was kind of boring, but it was also really respectful. Mm -hmm. Like there was a there was a lot of um, a lot of attention played uh, and paid to you know to equality and to representation and the fact that um, that women have been making films and doing amazing work on all levels um, for hundreds of years, mm -hmm. as, as long as film has been around, women have been working in it. Yeah. Um, and just recognizing that that's, that that's something we need to talk about constantly. Mm -hmm. And that if we don't talk about it constantly, it's just going to, it's just going to slide back because the, the status quo is really easy to maintain. Mm -hmm. Um, it's much, much harder to change the status quo and keep it changed because, you know, Entropy. Everything always wants to slide back to where comfort is, where you know where this where the system is comfortable, where where everything is um, as it quote unquote should be, and we can't do that anymore. And I think that Hollywood is recognizing that we can't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that don't know how to change how they do things to recognize that, but I think that there are enough people and enough younger um, younger directors and 
and uh, technicians and actors and actresses that are coming that are coming up that are just like, no, no, that's not how we're going to do it. That's mm-hmm. not the that's not the set I'm going to create. Um, you know, when you when you look at. Uh, uh, what was that film? Zoe Lister-Jones film from last year um, that I really wish I could remember the <laughs> name of, but we showed it at, we, we showed it at festival and it was an all-woman crew. Mm-hmm. And that was important. That was crucial to her. And, and to have Frances McDormand have all of the women nominees mm-hmm. to stand up and say, these are people who are making films mm-hmm. in every category. There was a woman nominated yeah. for something. Um, and, and in many categories, it was a lot of women nominated. Um, now, did women win? Not always. Right. <laughs> um, but if we don't keep saying, you have to look at this, then the status quo is always going to win. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I really liked what Frances McDormand said about, like, don't, like, we have stories we want to tell and we have ideas and you need to listen to them, but mm-hmm. don't ask us about it at the after party. Like, no. Invite us to your office. Exactly. Like, oh, treat it, treat us like, treat us like colleagues. Yeah. We have ideas and we would like to have a business meeting with you mm-hmm. because it is a business. It is not something that you offhandedly, oh, yeah, I talked to her about that at the party. We'll see if we can follow up. Yeah. That's not, I mean, there's a lot of business, actually, that does get, <laughs> does happen that way. But if you don't if you don't treat um, women and directors of color as colleagues, as equivalent colleagues, and set a meeting with them, mm-hmm. then you're never going to see them as equivalent colleagues. Yeah. And you know, one one great way to start is is that inclusion writer, and it's a really important important thing that the the A-list stars is like so if you want Frances McDormand on your film she's going to have an inclusion writer mm-hmm. and that means that if there is no difference for what ethnicity or gender a person plays that you don't automatically assume it's going to be a white man mm-hmm. so if you're looking at like a cafe scene there's no reason that it, that cannot be half women, proportionally people of color, an incredibly diverse, mm-hmm. um, you know, people with different, dis- you know, different abilities. There's no reason that that can't be represented and people can't see that on screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That young kids growing up can't see them, you know, as the pilot. There's no reason that the pilot can't be an Asian woman. There, none, zero reason. And so until, until Hollywood changes and we actually start seeing people represented, the young people coming up, if you don't see yourself, then you don't think you can. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think Black Panther is so like revolutionary yeah, mm-hmm. is because you know African Americans are seeing themselves as superheroes right. and warriors and the thing that has been reserved for you know square jawed Clark Kent and you know Australians with hammers you know I mean it's the sea change that is happening and I hope it continues to happen you know from Wonder Woman you know. A girl superhero selling yeah. a movie? Mm-hmm. Eh, absolutely. Yeah. Until it gets trounced by an African-American <laughs> superhero yeah, selling right. a movie. You know, just like, this is awesome. Um, and then if we can just keep that going, and it's, 
It has its corollary in independent film. You know, some of the highest grossing films this year um, in terms of the art house independent world mm-hmm. were Get Out and Lady Bird. And, um, call Me By Your Name. Call Me By Your Name, mm-hmm. exactly. Like stories that 10 years ago would not have been able to be told mm-hmm. in such an honest and um, open way. Yeah. Uh, not that there weren't, you know, gay love stories, but... It's, it feels different. Mm-hmm. It just feels different that, that these are having such success and people are paying attention to them. And the part that feels different, especially with like Get Out and Lady Bird, is that um, it's not just the democratic core of big cities going to see them. It's people across the country who heard at work like, oh man, I saw Get Out last night. It is awesome and you mm-hmm. need to go see it. And so you you get that that sort of um, that trickle down with art house in that those films were also playing at you know AMC's and Regals and Cinemarks. They're playing in malls across the country, mm-hmm. and there you know a lot of communities. There's not an art house theater, and so the mall is where you go. And if the only films the mall is showing are Avengers 2 and Fast and Furious 9, (laughs) then that's what you think about movies. But if those malls, um, and I'm using malls as, you know, any any kind of multiplex Mm -hmm. um, movie theater, which is really where a lot of non-urban, you know, suburban and rural, that's that's the only action they, you know, only... um, uh, that's all they're exposed to. That's all they can go. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's not an art house. There's just there's not the there's not the audience to support an art house in a lot of parts right. of the country. Um, but having those films play in those, you know, the the Get Outs and the Lady Birds and the I Am Not Your Negroes and the Calling by Your Names and mm-hmm. even the Disaster Artist, um, you know, having some of those films be there, accessible to everyone, right. has been huge. Yeah, and trusting audiences to. Like, I mean, I think that the, the big reason for lack of exposure is that people, or maybe, I think, mm-hmm. for the lack of exposure is that people don't think that they would do well because they don't think audiences are smart enough. Exactly. Or have open minds, um, which, like, a lot of people don't, but you don't know that until you show it to them. Yep. So. Yeah. Yeah. Assuming the audience is stupid um, is, I think, a real problem that Hollywood has. And it's the reason that there's so many sequels Mm -hmm. is because they assume that that's all the audience really wants to watch because they made $100 million with this one. Well, if we just do two or three more like that, that's all they really want to watch because they didn't go see, you know, this other smaller film. And it's like, well, because you didn't give that film a chance. Mm -hmm. So... There's this, I mean, honestly, we all still want to go see Star Wars. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, there, you know, so there's that. Um, but there's got to be room for both. There's got to be room for the big Hollywood blockbusters that can't all be sequels. But some of them are, you know, I'm really looking forward to the second Thor. Um, but, but also for some of those smaller films and... You know, that's where art house cinemas really shine is, you know, for us, our ability to play, um, you know, Faces Places or to keep, um, you know, The Shape of Water um, here uh, in our cinemas for, you know, that's it's like three months we've had it here and it's still, people are still coming to see it. Mm-hmm. And so um, being able to, to be that place that people see these amazing films mm-hmm. um, is, is really 
it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to be a part of that. Yay, we're happy to. <laughs> um, so a little bit about female representation within the Academy Awards mm-hmm. themselves. I was actually just reading an article yesterday from Variety, mm-hmm. um, and they were talking about this report from the Women's Media Center, mm-hmm. um, which talked about, like, in spite of all the efforts to get female representation um, and people of color representation up, there has been, like, almost none, <laughs> like, no increase. Um, mm-hmm. So, like, last year there was a 20%... Um, 20% of the nominees for the Oscars were female in non-acting categories, mm-hmm. whereas, like, this year, because of um, people um, like Rachel Morrison, mm-hmm. um, it went up to 23%, mm-hmm. um, and Greta Gerwig, of course, being the fifth female mm-hmm. nomination. Um, but with all that being said, in your opinion, do you think that with the new, like, Time's Up movements and the inclusion writer mm-hmm. now being in people's mind, do you think that over the years slowly the number will increase for Mm -hmm. female recognition or do you think it will kind of like slowly I think no it's absolutely going to increase Um, so in the case of of somebody like Rachel Morrison just being nominated Mm -hmm. opened the door like women can now see themselves as cinematographers right not you know that could that could win an Academy Award as a cinematographer mm-hmm. because she's opened the door and to have her do something as incredible and you know small and intimate like Mudbound and then turn around and do Black Panther mm-hmm. like she can do it all and so other women are gonna say oh me too I could do that yeah me too I could do that and so over the course of years we're going to see that. Um, those percentages change. And obviously they're going to like wax and wane every year right. because maybe the films shot by women aren't really, you know, really well supported that mm-hmm. year and maybe there's this, this and this. But just seeing them up there, seeing Jordan Peele up there as a screenwriter, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, okay. Seeing Greta Gerwig as a director. See Yancey Ford as a director. I, you know, trans people are like, oh, I could get nominated for an Academy Award. I can be a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I mean, just just seeing is the first step. And so over the course of years, absolutely, I think that it is going to be, we're going to look back in 20 years and go, oh, do you remember when, you know, whew, right. yeah, that's never going to happen again. <laughs> but, I mean, hopefully. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. my, like, big rosy sky yeah. prediction um, yeah. on that one. But Well, I hope so. I mean, there's so many young like people watching films mm-hmm. now and being f- the filmmakers themselves mm-hmm. and, and wanting to like being in the right mind and like wanting to be inclusive and support women and people of color on their journeys in making film and, mm-hmm. and it's just it starts with that yeah the nomination for just like a nomination and yep. opening the door exactly but also being supportive like of anyone that mm-hmm. is in the minority, so. Yeah. yeah. Now, the acting categories need to change in terms of diversity mm-hmm. um, because there yeah. were some amazing performances um, this year by more than Denzel Washington and Octavia Spencer. Mm-hmm. Just going to say that. Yes. Just <laughs> leave it at that. I think that's just all We're just going to leave it at that. <laughs> um, okay, great. Um, so then tying this all back to SIF, um, how, in what ways does the programming team demonstrate this equal gender representation um, when deciding on inviting films for festival? So we are, 
We are constantly on the look for women filmmakers mm -hmm. and in terms of American films, filmmakers of color, um, and tr trying very hard. It's, it is our mandate mm -hmm. to be at 50%, and it is hard, and every year we get a little bit better. Um, I would love it if we were at 50%, and, mm -hmm. and our goal is for competition films to be at 50% um, women directors. It's hard mm -hmm. because there's the projects are still not all being given to women, so they're still not being sh being able to shine in those categories. Um, but it's a goal, and it's it's a it's definitely a point when we're looking at films. That is that is one of the factors that we are looking at. Is you know is this is this a new discovery director first? Like is this um, you know, is this a, a woman director or a person of color uh, at the helm of this film? Is you know, is the subject matter something that is forward thinking? Um, it's harder in certain areas of the world. Eastern Europe mm -hmm. doesn't have a huge number of women directors um, that are being given the opportunities. Um, Italy, uh, the same. Uh, you know, there's there's actually a lot of women directors in Scandinavia, <laughs> um, uh, stuff like that. S South America, it's a little fifty-fifty. But um, you know, as countries change and as as um, equality, you know, Norway has a you know everything has to be equal, everything has to be split. The gender equity has to be fifty-fifty mm -hmm. in every portion of every part of every production. And so as as that sort of trickles through and over the next years you'll see more films directed by women coming through the systems mm -hmm. that are in place especially in Europe, Scandinavia and, and South America they have film institutes um, support and um, procedures and processes that are in place to help filmmakers and if those institutes are committed to gender equity mm -hmm. you'll see a lot more films coming out of those areas directed by women. It's you know it's it's a matter of supporting the directors that you want to see leading in the coming years mm -hmm. um, uh, for those countries. Now of course the United States has no such uh, support system in place. Um, and so it, it really uh, falls on um, falls on festivals and falls on distributors and yeah. falls on cinema ex exhibitors to keep those films in the forefront and to keep putting them out um, and keep keep exposing uh, you know films made by women to the audiences because then the audience will see them and then funders will say oh that film by a woman actually made some money mm -hmm. so maybe I'll do another film directed by a woman right, yeah I mean it's it's a vicious circle um, and it's definitely like an Ouroboros kind of thing it's like it you know the snake eats its tail if mm -hmm. if the film doesn't make any money then they don't blame the script or what, then the funders can blame oh it was a woman director of course it wasn't going to fail but if the film makes money and it's successful, um, then it goes a different way and they'll give another woman a chance. And, and, and by funders, I just mean this great amorphous, um, you know, by and large straight white men mm -hmm. funding Hollywood system right. yeah. um, that we're all sort of, that everything sort of emerges out of. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know for me, like when I 
picking things to watch and mm-hmm. do pay attention to like obviously who directed it and like where it came from and um if I can look up how many like people of color are in the mm-hmm. cast or, or or crew but um yeah it, it is hard I mean like I found it to be hard mm-hmm. but you obviously have more experience but in the few months that I've been here <laughs> yeah it's there's so many films that are yes that yeah. are out there. Yeah. So. There's a lot of films out there. Yeah. Um, and it is and it is hard. And, you know, the, the more films that we are able to spotlight mm-hmm. that have people of color uh, in leadership roles and women in leadership roles, the better it's going to become. And then it's not going to become an issue, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the 10 years when I live in my utopian universe right. <laughs> um, where it's just not an issue anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and you know, there's, there's, it's, it's just, it's challenging. Mm-hmm. It's a challenging, it's a challenging process to go through, um, and it challenges all of us as programmers. Mm-hmm. That you know, and you know, we're thinking about it's like, oh, but am I choosing it just because it's a woman, or is it still a good film? Mm-hmm. And we, you know, there's, there's a, there's a lot of um, complicating factors to go through to look at films and to look at how the giant puzzle of the festival fits together um, to make sure that we don't, we're not weighted on one side or another side or this or that um, because it really is, it's like a Jenga tower. Like all the different things have to be there and some of them can be removed and, you know, one year we can have, you know, 10 films from Mexico and another year we can have two. And, you know, some mm-hmm. of them, they can move and change, but the basic structures all have to be um, in place <laughs> or else the Jenga Tower falls. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then second to last question. Um, is there any advice that you would offer aspiring women working towards their goals? And not just in filmmaking, but... Like mm. I was going to say, see as many films as you can. <laughs> um, I think women working in film need to see as many films as they can, mm-hmm. as many films by as many different directors um, as they possibly can, because that is actually where you learn... Um, where you... L- learn and can hone what your vision is. Mm-hmm. Um, not copying, obviously, but um, everybody is inspired by everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so seeing a, a wide variety of films from from all over the world, I think, is really crucial. Um, I think, you know, women working toward their goals, you know, it sounds almost glib to say, you know, don't give up. Right. Um, but don't don't give up. Mm-hmm. Don't let anyone tell you that your vision isn't worth as much as somebody else's vision. Um, and if, like, when you stumble, because every, everybody stumbles, and when terrible things happen, mm-hmm. because terrible things happen to all of us, because we're human beings, or you make bad decisions, or you you know you choose something wrong. Mm-hmm. Don't let that stop you, because I've chosen a lot of things wrong, and I've made a lot of bad decisions. Um, but every one of them. I learned from, and you get to a different place. And I'm not the person that I was 25 years ago mm-hmm. when I moved to Seattle. I'm an extremely different person. Um, and a lot of that was a lot of good decisions and a lot of bad decisions. <laughs> um, so, but don't let, don't let those stop you and mire you down um, from believing in where you want to go. Great. That's great advice. Yeah. So yeah. last question. Thanks. Do you have a favorite film? <laughs> 
can you decide on one? <laughs> so what's funny is I have a lot of I have a lot of favorite films. Mm-hmm. I really I'm I'm a big fan of Peter Greenaway and The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover is one of oh my, my favorite films of all time. Um, but my standard answer is uh, David Lynch's Dune. Okay. I actually <laughs> I love it and. Part of the reason I love it is not that I think it's a terrific film. I think it's way too long. I think it's um, there's a lot of problems with it. It was not a spectacular film. But what it is is it's, um, it's this comfort food for me that I can watch over and over and over and over and never, ever get tired of it. Mm-hmm. Like there's no, there's no part of it that, that I don't love. Um, in the way that, you know, you love an old pair of pajamas. It's not, it's maybe not quite <laughs> great. And it's, it could probably yeah. be, you know, upgraded and stuff like that. But, um, but yeah. That's so, nice. Dune. It's nice to have a movie like that that you can just, like, put on. Oh, sure. Just, Anytime I see it, I yeah. just, yeah, I'll That's sit down awesome. and watch it. Yeah, I actually, the first time, I also like the cook, mm-hmm. the thief, his wife, and her lover. Yep. I, like the first time I saw it was actually with Nello. I was like, what are you showing us? Um, oh my God. <laughs> I, Dumbledore will never be the same ever yeah, again. Nope. Um, nope but no, it was great. But yeah. I actually haven't seen Dune, so I'll check it out. Yeah, I, don't blame me. When you, I mean, and, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's not a great film. And that's just, it's like, I. If you ask me, like, what what I thought was the best film ever made, that's an entirely different oh thing, yeah. which I would have zero way to to say what the best film ever made yeah. was, because in in what category, yeah, right. in what uh, mm-hmm. you know, in what time frame, in what there's not just there's there's no there's no way to there's no way to say that. Yeah. Um, but you know, favorites. Now that's a whole different mm-hmm. story. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's great. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Okay, we are now at the second segment of this episode. I hope everyone enjoyed my interview with Beth, and I'm so grateful to have had that opportunity to speak with her. I wanted to quickly just bring up the Variety article I mentioned in my interview with Beth um, titled Oscar Recognition for Women Showing Little Progress, which was written by Dave McNary, and it brings up a study conducted by the Women's Media Center. This study states that the representation of women had increased minimally despite a concerted push by women and their allies to achieve greater representation for females in all part of the film industry. And so from that, as I mentioned in my chat with Beth, the article also mentioned that the number of female Oscar nominees grew only slightly in non-acting categories this year from 23% to 23% from 20%. As Beth mentioned, just having Rachel Morrison being the first female nominated for cinematography opens the door for other women within the industry um, to see themselves in that position and say, you know, I can do that too. So ever since you know, I mean, ever since stories came out last October about Harvey Weinstein, more brave women and some men have spoken out about their assault against notable industry figures. This includes Kevin Spacey, Louis C.K., Matt Lauer, and James Franco. So then we have this year at the Golden Globes, where many attendees wore black in solitude with the Time's Up and Me Too movements. 
which recognized that time is up for inequality within the industry and time's up for me for <laughs> sexual harassment. This year, some would say that the Oscars show was pretty low-key and, well, I'll use Beth's word, respectable. When you compare this year's show to the past two years' shows, this one was, you know, pretty low-key. So in 2016, we were presented with the movement Oscars So White, which April Rain started to showcase um, the lack of diversity among the nominations for the Academy Awards. Last year in 2017, we had people speaking up about the Time's Up and Me Too movements. This year, we had Frances McDormand and her raising awareness for the idea of the Inclusion Rider Clause. A lot of people, including myself actually, um, had no idea what she was talking about. And that night, about 90% of Google searches were probably for the phrases Inclusion Rider and Feminism. I don't doubt that. So what is an Inclusion Rider? As NPR's All Things Considered put it, it's a stipulation that actors and actresses can ask or demand for to have inserted into their contracts, which would require a certain level of diversity among a film's crew or cast. Another example NPR gave was, for instance, an A-list actor negotiating to join a film could use the inclusion writer to insist that speaking characters should match the gender distribution of the setting for the film, as long as it's sensible for the plot. Stacey L. Smith is the director for the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative at the University of Southern California. NPR stated that Smith, for years, has pushed for more diverse representation in film and has worked tirelessly with the Inclusion Writer Clause and delivered a TED Talk on this exact topic. In the talk, Smith discusses gender inequality in film and how it is perpetrated and brings up the fact that females are still, and continue to be, erased and marginalized in the stories that films tell. Smith goes on to discuss her research that her and her team conduct each year, since 2007 to 2015, they examine the top 100 grossing films in the U.S., and they look at every speaking or name character on screen, even if that person only says one word. So, their research was a little bit broad, but you get the point. Since 2007, they have looked at over 800 films, cataloging every speaking character on screen for gender, race, ethnicity, LGBT, and characters with disabilities. Some of their findings include the fact that females are still noticeably absent on screen in film. Across 800 movies and 35,205 speaking characters, less than a third of all roles go to girls and women. From 2007 to 2015, there has been no change, and they compared their results to a small sample of films from 1946 to 1955, and still, in over half a century, there was no change in their data. Next, Smith shared that when they looked at the data intersectionally, things were way more problematic. Shocker. Smith stated that they found across the top 100 films of last year, 48 films didn't feature one black or African-American speaking character. 70 films were devoid of Asian or Asian-American speaking characters that were girls or women. 84 films didn't feature one female character that had a disability. And 93 films were devoid of lesbian, bisexual, or transgender female speaking characters. This is what Smith called the epidemic of invisibility. Smith goes on to discuss the protagonist and states that out of 100 films last year, only 32 films featured a female lead or co-lead driving the action. 
Only three out of a hundred films featured an underrepresented female driving the story and only one diverse woman that was 45 years of age or older at the time of theatrical release. And I actually talked about this with Tess in my first episode um, about how mature female actors in film and television are portrayed or casted. You don't often see that many older women getting casted for roles for their specific age. It's always almost always older women getting casted in roles that perceive them um, to be younger. Um, And actually, according to Susan Liddy, who did research discussing how these films construct the older protagonist, she concluded that just 30% of female characters are 40 years or older when compared to their male counterparts. Women are almost all of the time portrayed to be more sexual and are sexualized more often than their male counterparts. Stacey Smith talks about this and states that women are about three times as likely to be shown in sexually revealing clothing, partially naked, and they're far more likely to be thin in film and television. Now, to me, this is obviously a huge problem. Another huge problem that lies beneath the surface is that young girls and women are watching these films and TV shows. They're watching the lead actress having these false ideals and disproportionate bodies um, and having these ideals and standards that are set to men's standards. Um, And that, you know, that these women are being told that that is how the world, especially men, wants to view women. This is what will make people like you. This sets up a standard on what you should be comparing yourself to as a woman. And this needs to change. One way to change these things, and not as simple as it sounds, but one way to change these things and get more women on screen and in more creative and realistic roles is what Stacey Smith suggests, which is to simply hire more female directors. And I love this idea. You know, get more women working behind the the camera in key production roles. Change the fact that out of 800 films from 2007 to 2015 and 886 directors, that only 4.1% are women, that only 3% are African-American or Black, and only one woman director was Asian. Of course, nothing is that easy. And the problem, as Smith goes on to discuss, is deeply rooted within the industry and even more deeply rooted in systemic racism and sexism. That is all I have for you today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. This is your host, Alex, signing off.